In the last episode of The Negotiators, we heard from Cindy Parlo-Cohn, president of the U.S. Soccer Federation, on the negotiations that led to equal pay in U.S. national soccer. When the players decided to take up the fight for equal pay, they turned to sports attorney Jeffrey Kessler. He's built a career representing some of the most high-profile athletes in labor disputes with professional leagues. Amy Keene spoke with Kessler on the podcast The Closer. It's a show about deals and deal makers from our friends at Project Brazen. Today, we're sharing this episode from that show, taking you inside the team's strategy from Kessler's perspective and revealing how exactly they got the deal done. A quite remarkable comeback from the USA. And the USA are world champions once again. In all of women's soccer, in all of U.S. soccer, one team dominates. The United States of America are the 2015 World Cup winners. For the fourth time, the United States of America are crowned champions of the world. And for the very first time, they've done it on European soil. It is finished. The most World Cup titles, the most Olympic gold medals, the most number one in the world rankings. And today, perhaps the best known champions of a fight off the field, equal pay. It's a chant now linked forever to the 2019 U.S. women's soccer team. What you're seeing is the women saying, listen, we are your most valuable product and you are not treating us as such. Welcome back to season two of The Closer, a show that covers the inside story of deals that change the world. On this episode, we're talking about the landmark soccer deal that's rewriting the rules of how professional athletes are paid at the highest level. How the winningest team in women's soccer fought for their worth, as told by the lawyer who helped build their case. What I think was so appealing about this fight was if these women, who were clearly the best in the world, and who clearly outperformed the men's team. If they couldn't get equal pay, then who is going to get equal pay, right? So it really sort of highlighted that whole struggle. This is The Closer. I'm Amy Keene. Back in the late 1970s, a young Jeffrey Kessler started his law career at a big New York firm. It was called Wild Gottschall. And I went there to become an antitrust lawyer. Antitrust law. This might make you think of things like monopoly power, price fixing, cartels. It refers to the set of laws meant to maintain competition among businesses. The idea is that a competitive and efficient market keeps prices down and quality up for the benefit of consumers. But matters of antitrust law in professional sports in the late 70s? There were frankly very few such cases. Uh, at that time, the business was very, very small economically. It didn't generate that much legal work. And very early in my career, I became involved in utilizing antitrust law to try to create uh, economic rights and freedoms for athletes. When Jeffrey joined Weil, the firm was in the midst of settling a landmark effort by NBA Hall of Famer Oscar Robertson to bring free agency to the league. 
Well, I think it's, it's really revolutionized the game of basketball. Absolutely. As far as, far as being paid. A absolutely. And, and for players, like players playing 15 to 20 years now, because the money is important. As professional sports became big business, commissioners of the establishment leagues like the NFL, the NHL, and the MLB, they all concentrated power. And kind of like a cartel, these leagues control things that might otherwise be set by the market in other industries. Think of who owns which teams and the salary caps they set. This is where Jeffrey's antitrust practice comes in. And really everything sort of developed from there. Additional sports clients looking for antitrust help came to the firm. I became involved in those and it was sort of step by step that my career really developed with sort of two legs. One leg in traditional antitrust work for big companies in a variety of industries, the other in professional sports. You might be familiar with some of his most high-profile cases. He represented Tom Brady when the quarterback and other players challenged the 2011 NFL lockout. Then, Division I college athletes and their battle with the NCAA for greater compensation. And Tom Brady again in the Deflategate scandal. You know, I've had the good fortune in my career to work on some cases and matters that I think have made a difference in the lives of people. Fast forward to 2016, Jeffrey's co-chairman of another firm, Winston & Strawn, and he gets a call from the union representing the U.S. women's national soccer team. They were very unhappy with the deals that they had had in the past, uh, and they were looking to develop ways to better assert their rights and power to get what they would hope would be a fair compensation. Fair compensation from their employer, the U.S. Soccer Federation. By this point, the U.S. women's national soccer team had already racked up just about every win and title they could, some more than once. They dominated the competition on the field, and players were emerging as celebrities in their own right. Alex Morgan, Kristen Press, Carly Lloyd, and then, of course, Megan Rapinoe. Rapinoe might go all the way! A superb goal from Megan Rapinoe! I think now that final game was the most watched game in U.S. soccer history, both male yeah, and female. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that is just goes to show you how empowering this is. Well, there may be one or two towering players out here, but don't put Megan Rapinoe in that bracket. These were the women Jeffrey Kessler was getting ready to work with when the players' union called him up. They were really interested in how they could change the economic costs of their history, not so much for themselves, but for the future generation of women who would follow them. The players wanted their paychecks to reflect the value they brought to the field, and that started with equal pay. During the bargaining, we developed the analysis that showed that they weren't getting equal pay with the men's team even though they were better than the men's team in their performance. They did the same job as the men's team, and they had the same employer. One example of the pay disparity the women found was in their compensation for friendlies, or the matches both the men's and women's team played each year beyond the big tournaments. For every friendly, the women earned the equivalent of $3,600. If they won, they'd get a bonus of $1,350. Let's talk about women's soccer players. They're the big stars in the States with all the money and the glory of the men. Well, except for the money part. 
The men, on the other hand, they got a bonus as much as nearly $18,000, depending on how their opponent was ranked and whether they tied or won the game, and a minimum of $5,000 to play, even if they lost. $5,000. Five Jeez, if you lose. Could you imagine having that much money? Can't really imagine it. To be clear about one thing, the men and the women were on two different contracts with U.S. soccer. Many of the women on the national team received a salary as well as some benefits like health insurance and parental leave. The men did not. But there was another big disparity in earning potential for men and women in professional soccer at the time. Most of the women's national team players earned most of their living either from their national team compensation or some of them had big sponsorships. But their pro salaries on clubs were quite smaller in most cases. So much less that some players worked other jobs on top of playing soccer. Equal pay for men and women in the same or similar jobs is far from a novel issue, and it's played out in the world of sports for years. She's carrying a banner for the women. Billy Jean King. Do you says, like women? So a lot of people said you don't like women. This is really well, more like than them. just. I like them real good in the bedroom, the kitchen, and uh, when they bring you the, the slippers and the pipe. Nearly 50 years ago, tennis star Billie Jean King challenged Bobby Riggs to an exhibition match after he claimed that women don't play as well as men. I really think the best way to handle the women is to, is to keep them pregnant and barefoot. Uh, <laughs> This way, they don't worry about getting out in the men's world and competing for jobs and trying to get equal money and all that baloney. She famously won in three sets. Sometimes people say to me, thanks for what you did for women's tennis. I smile and I say thank you, but they would never say that to a male tennis player. They would say, thank you for what you did for tennis. The law was settled even earlier than tennis's battle of the sexes. In 1963, the Equal Pay Act amended the Fair Labor Standards Act, and it was meant to protect against wage discrimination on the basis of sex. And then there's Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It prohibits employment discrimination based on things like religion, race, and sex. So we made it a point, we, the women players and their union, made it a point to make equal pay a fundamental part of their bargaining demands because it's legally required. And during the course of the bargaining, uh, the USSF said no. They said, we're not giving you equal pay. So Jeffrey, the players, and the union decide it's time to open up another legal front. And the front we opened up was to file a complaint for five of the women for equal pay. Five of the most high-profile players announced they are filing an equal pay complaint against U.S. soccer. Carly Lloyd, Hope Solo, Alex Morgan, Becky Sauerbrunn, and Megan Rapino. These players were taking their argument to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC. Which is the government agency that you have to first go to before you could assert an equal pay claim. It's a gatekeeper, if you will, and they do an investigation. Remember that the players are in the midst of collective bargaining with U.S. soccer on a contract. Then they ratchet things up a notch by filing this complaint. 
In the complaint, they outline pay disparities in three of the four types of compensation from the Federation. First, the friendlies, those non-tournament games where men earned higher base and bonus pay. Second, something called other compensation, like sponsorship appearances and per diem to cover meals while on the road. They said men were paid more for both. Third, the World Cup, the most prestigious tournament in soccer, something the U.S. men's team had never won. And according to the complaint, the men earned $9 million for losing. This was in a relatively early round in 2014. But for the women who won the tournament in 2015, a total of just $2 million. So it was sort of indisputable, we thought, that it was discriminatory. The fourth pay category was for attending the Olympics. This was the one situation where U.S. soccer paid both the men's and women's teams equally. Now, the thing to understand about alleging discrimination in the workplace is that sometimes, according to the law at least, difference in pay is considered justified. Maybe the job isn't actually the same. Maybe one person did more work than another, or one job had different requirements than the other. But if the only difference is gender... If it's based on gender, it's not justified. And this was the claim Jeffrey and the five women named in the complaint were making. That the players on the men's and women's national soccer teams did the same job, but that the women were paid less. Never mind the fact that they had a better record than the men's team and had drawn the highest U.S. TV ratings for a soccer match in that 2015 World Cup final. Here's Hope Solo in an interview at the time. We continue to be told we should be grateful just to have the opportunity to play professional soccer. And in this day and age, it's about equality. It's about equal rights. It's about equal pay. When the complaint came out, U.S. soccer pushed back on some of the claims. One official called some of the players' figures inaccurate and misleading. The Federation also noted the men's and women's teams had negotiated two different sets of contracts. And they also tried to blame FIFA, which is the world body of soccer. This is for the World Cup bonuses. They said that, well, FIFA discriminates, which it does, and gave much bigger bonuses to the federations in the men's tournament than the women's tournament. So they said, well, that's not our fault. It was correct that FIFA was the body that paid bigger bonuses in the men's tournaments than it did in the women's. But... The problem with that argument is that FIFA doesn't pay any money to the athletes. FIFA pays the federations, and the federations, like U.S. soccer, are the ones who pay the athletes. Here's Carly Lloyd. We've proven our worth over the years, just coming off of a, a World Cup win, and the pay disparity between the men and women is, is just too large, and, and we want to continue to fight. The players were still in the midst of collective bargaining with U.S. soccer, and at this point, getting equal pay with the men's team just wasn't on the table. As Jeffrey tells it, the Federation said, Either take the best offer we're making now, or we're going to shut down the sport. They know employers have the right under labor laws. When you get to the end of an agreement, if there's no deal, they can engage in what's called a lockout, shut down the sport. So under that choice, which is not much of a choice, the women decided it was better to take the best deal that was available, which was not an equal pay deal, and preserve their legal rights. 
because they were going to continue the equal pay fight in the courts, having not been able to achieve it at the collective bargaining Mm -hmm. table. An elite team of soccer stars kicking off a new fight for equality. The U.S. women's soccer team is taking charge in a major fight off the field, suing for fair pay this just three Fast forward a couple years, and the team raises the stakes once again. They move on from their complaint with the EEOC to a full-on lawsuit. In March 2019, with the green light from the commission, the women's team sues U.S. soccer for institutionalized gender discrimination. The players seek about $67 million in damages, and they make it a class action suit, including players from rosters a few years back. That ratcheted things up quite a bit, not just because we added in all the players in a class action and we're going forward in court for a day of reckoning, uh, but also because it allowed us to put together a major public strategy to rally the world around these women in the cause of equal pay. The filing brought on International Women's Day comes three months before the U.S. women try to defend their World Cup crown. And then in June, the team heads to Paris. Spain works so, so hard, but it is the defending champions who march on. That is it. U.S. advances. The French are up. Seven minutes have been played and the United States are into the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup final. Their third World Cup final in succession. The women went to the World Cup that year in Paris, and they won the World Cup. The United States of America are crowned champions of the world. The United States becomes the first team, in fact, to win three women's World Cup titles in the highest scoring final in tournament. The women of the U.S. soccer team are world champions again. Playing in its third straight final, Team USA beat the Netherlands 2-0 in Lyon. There's just something about this group that said nothing will ever bring us apart. And I think that 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 meant that no team will ever beat us. Basically, the entire stadium spent that game that was globally televised chanting equal pay, equal pay, equal pay. It became a global issue. All the teams around the world supported the women. Uh, Many sponsors, prominent sponsors of U.S. soccer, decided that this was an issue that appealed to their consumers, Mm -hmm. that they wanted to get behind this cause of equal pay. And that compelling story was told. The women spent lots of time appearing on television shows. This was part of that coordinated public strategy to get fans to rally around the players' fight. For comment, team co-captain Megan Rapino and Kristen Press join us this morning. Ladies, good morning. Thank you for being here. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. We are so excited to have the U.S. Women's National Team fresh off their historic fourth World Cup win. Say it again. How many times? Four. That's what I'm talking about. And they celebrated, too. Please welcome co-captains of the team, Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino. What I think was so appealing about this fight was if these women, who were clearly the best in the world and who clearly outperformed the men's team, if they couldn't get equal pay, then who was going to get equal pay, right? So it really sort of highlighted that whole struggle. 
It's very frustrating for us on the team, um, you know, for women everywhere, I'm sure, um, to be feeling like they, they aren't getting paid what they should be. After that big win in France, the women are given a hero's welcome in New York City. The streets of Lower Manhattan are filled with fans, and on a stage, the team's assembled. Bill de Blasio, the mayor at the time, he gives the women the keys to the city. Later on in this ceremony, we will honor each player and each coach with the highest honor New York City gives, the key to the city. And every one of them has earned it. Then, Carlos Cordero, the president of U.S. soccer, gets up to speak. But before he even starts the crowd erupts in a chant. Cordero acknowledges the team's victory. He talks about the investment U.S. soccer is making in the game for young girls and for women. And then he talks about the proverbial elephant in the room. In recent months, you have raised your voices for equality. Today, on behalf of all of us at U.S. soccer, I want to say, we hear you, we believe in you, and we're committed to doing right by you. One, the crowd was 100% aware of this issue and supportive. But two, uh, Megan Rapino, who was one of the leaders of, of the women on this, spoke and uh, very diplomatically, but very forcefully <laughs> made it clear that from the women's perspective, the U.S. Federation needed to put up or shut up. I'm going to endorse Carlos. I think he's with us. I think he's on the right side of things. I think he's going to make things right. You can talk about supporting the women and the women's game, and that's great. We need equal pay. We look forward to holding those feet to the fire. And uh, so that issue was joined right on that public stage. All of these women, whether it was... uh, Pino or Alex Morgan or Kristen Press, uh, so many of these women, they had no hesitance to speak truth to power as what they were entitled to, what all women were entitled to. After the break, the fight for equal pay gets ugly. We'll be right back. The U.S. women's national soccer team comes home from the 2019 World Cup victorious. With another trophy in hand, the players have the support of their fans and sponsors. And there's a sense that the U.S. Soccer Federation might be willing to consider the women's position. But by the beginning of the next year, 2020, this cordial public dialogue between the players and the Federation takes a turn. And it happens in a court filing. This is a really fascinating, remarkable story here. New court documents reveal why U.S. soccer says women should not get paid as much as men. In an apparent attempt to dispute any gender discrimination, U.S. soccer's legal team made a series of claims about supposed differences between the men's and women's teams. It said the men's team players had more responsibility and that the men's team required a higher level of skill than the women's team. It even went as far as saying their claim wasn't a sexist stereotype, but rather, quote, indisputable science, distinguishing physical ability between the men and the women. Well, needless to say, the world reacted. 
You're asking me a question about a federation in a 2,600-page legal filing saying that biological science is the reason why men should make more money than the women? You've got to be kidding me. Sponsors reacted, uh, threatened to kill their sponsorships with them. People around the world, commentators reacted. There was this gigantic public outcry that you're telling these women they're not good enough for equal pay, the best women in the world. Another shakeup at the top of U.S. soccer. Uh, any surprise that this announcement was made? No, not, none whatsoever, Zubin, especially when you've got Volkswagen, Coke, and other sponsorships coming out immediately going right after U.S. soccer and the Federation and Carlos Cordero. Carlos Cordero, the guy who stood up and celebrated the women's team after their World Cup victory, he's in charge at this point. He'd have to take the fall. The president of the U.S. Soccer Federation has stepped down from his position. You know, he claimed he didn't know what was going to be in the papers, but that was sort of beside the point. This wasn't made up in their papers. This came from their testimony. Yeah, I, I can't believe U.S. Soccer actually put these arguments on paper. <laughs> That's on paper in court. In court. We used it affirmatively to sh try to show this was their discriminatory intent. They used it defensively to argue, well, it's not discrimination because the games are so different. Because, the, because women are so different from men, the games are therefore different. So you can't compare them. That was their argument. U.S. soccer fires their outside counsel, hires different lawyers, and installs a new face at the top of the federation, Cindy Parlow-Cohn, who had been vice president. She's the first woman to be president in the organization's history, and she's a celebrated former member of the U.S. women's national team. And she quickly disavows the arguments in that filing. So with new leadership at U.S. soccer, the women's team gets ready for their trial set for May. Now, the point of a trial is to look at evidence and listen to testimony to figure out what's true. But presenting evidence and testimony is time-consuming and expensive. So each party has the option to file for something called summary judgment. This is where one party says this evidence is so conclusive that even if you think about it from the opposing side's point of view, our argument is in fact clearly what happened. So there's no need for a trial. The women's team did so, arguing that the pay differences between the men and the women had to be a result of nothing other than gender discrimination. Meanwhile, U.S. soccer did as well, and they argued that not only was there no gender discrimination, the women weren't necessarily paid less. This was the summary judgment filing that got U.S. soccer in so much trouble with fans and sponsors just a bit earlier. But the ruling on this summary judgment ends up bringing another setback for the women's team. A federal judge has dismissed the unequal pay claim by the members of the U.S. women's national soccer team. What the judge ruled, in our view, incredibly, was that we couldn't show pay discrimination. The judge overseeing the case takes issue with the way the pay discrepancy is presented in the lawsuit. He ruled that in the period covered by the suit, the women actually earned more than the men. Here's how Jeffrey sums up the judge's argument. The women won so many more games than the men and played in more games than the men that their total compensation in a year was actually higher than the men. So therefore, there was no pay discrimination other than math. 
So in terms of total compensation, yes, the women's team did earn more than the men during the period of time covered by the lawsuit. But Jeffrey and the women's team had been arguing that the rate of compensation was not the same. Somehow, the judge looked and said, no, the math doesn't work, so you don't have pay discrimination. So we were shocked. We were devastated. The team wanted to appeal. But before all of this happened... COVID happened. The world shut down. And we were trying to get our trial. And we kept asking the judge, what are we going to do? Because he hadn't ruled on these motions. And the trial was set for May. And the judge wouldn't adjourn the trial. Uh, And so we were still thinking we have to prepare. So we were in a mode saying we have to get ready to try this case, even though we're all remote at the moment of what's going to happen. And then this decision comes down that really did shock us. The setbacks on the team's claim of institutional gender discrimination at U.S. soccer. The lawsuit also included a claim against the working conditions, which the two sides end up settling out of court. Then it's time to appeal that summary judgment. And this time around, they have even more support for their argument on the math that the judge had dismissed. And it comes in the form of amicus briefs from academics and equal pay experts and from the U.S. men's national team. And I think USSF correctly looked at this and said, we're not likely to win this appeal. We're likely to be headed back to trial. The world is against us. Uh, You know, maybe we should do something to try to settle this case. Settlement talks go back and forth for a while. This was still during COVID period. So most of the talks were by Zoom or, you know, know, or phone calls. And it was back and forth. The women themselves conducted some of the talks. The lawyers conducted some of these talks. It was sort of a, you know, back and forth. Finally, they came to the posture, yes, we will agree to equal pay. Equal pay on friendlies, for appearances, and crucially, for the World Cup prize money. That U.S. soccer would go back to the table with both the men's and women's teams to negotiate new collective bargaining agreements to reset these terms. It will be equal pay. And we define what that would mean. And basically what it would mean that if the women got the same results in the World Cup as the men got, they would get the same amount of money. When, when did you get the sense that you and the players were, were getting close to an agreeable deal with U.S. soccer? Once they said that they would agree to collect a bargaining agreement that would have equal pay for the World Cup, we felt that was the final breakthrough because that had always been their sticking issue. And where in the settlement process did that come through? Late. <laughs> Very very late. That's really was the last sticking point. It's what we finally got to, again, about a week before the oral argument was scheduled. So with the loose contours of a deal agreed, now it's time for Jeffrey, the players, U.S. soccer, and all the legal and PR folks to iron out the details. First, there's the damages. They agree on $22 million to be divided up among players in the suit. This was based on a special formula they came up with. And another $2 million that U.S. soccer would put into a fund for player development. All of these negotiations taking place from Jeffrey's home office. I remember during one of the calls, my uh, granddaughter, Olivia, 
who was seven at the time, came in and like interrupted the call <laughs> and like said like, what's going on? And so I told Olivia, I said, you know, I work for the women's soccer players. And they were all there, said, hi, Olivia. They all talk to her. I said, we're fighting because these women who are the best soccer players in the world don't get paid as much as the men. What do you think about that? And Olivia said, I don't even have to think about that for a second. That is wrong. And we said, yes, you are right. And that's why we're having this fight. And of course, all the women were very encouraged. The final step in this landmark deal for equal pay was to go back to the court. Class action settlements have to be approved by a judge. And we didn't actually get this approved until December of 2022. In the meantime, the U.S. women's team and the U.S. men's team reached new collective bargaining agreements with the Federation. So equal pay was achieved. And fittingly, the new collective bargaining agreement was signed after a women's friendly match in Washington, D.C. And there was a fantastic signing ceremony of the collective bargaining agreement that I was able to go witness to attend in Washington uh, at a friendly game uh, that was played. Thanks, Jules. Wow. We got here. We're finally here. Um, what a special day today is. And thank you all for staying. For the- uh, and everyone came out. There was a whole big deal that equal pay was being provided in the collective bargaining agreement. But we did it. We are here today to sign the contracts. And we have finally achieved equal pay for our men's and our women's national teams. Was there anything surprising or anything that you learned in the process of, of this case, this ongoing case that, um, I don't know, that just that taught you something about your line of work? I think what this case taught me more that I never had been as effective in was the combining of the legal fight with the public communications fight and how important that was to the overall effort. And in fact, I have no doubt that it was the combination of the public fight, uh, all, th- all the things the women did to go out there and develop support with sponsors and others, and the legal threat. It needed both <laughs> to get over this very difficult finish line. And, and it also taught me something I learned a long time ago, is that when you fall down, you get right back up. Uh, And that's where all these women were when we lost that summary judgment. And we were all determined, we're just going to fight harder. uh, And we're going to get there. How do you reflect on on this deal today? So I'm obviously proud and humbled to be part of this. Um, You know, I've had the good fortune in my career to work on some cases and matters that I think have made a difference in the lives of people. That's what, you know, what turns me on as a lawyer is I, I love the advocacy of being a lawyer and being in court and making arguments, but the fact that I've been able to do this for clients who also have made a difference on issues that are important to me, this was one of them. Uh, and um, so I can look back and I feel like uh, what these women were able to achieve was to not just establish equal pay for themselves, but to make an important contribution to the equal pay fight for women in general and the consciousness about that fight. 
and it seems that consciousness is already spreading. The Canadian women's national soccer team recently struck a deal with its Federation for Equal Pay, and other national teams are taking action against their working conditions. You know, things are moving the right way on this issue, although no one's naive not to think about there are a lot of struggles still there. So to the extent that I was able to play a helpful role in this and be part of this, uh, I am very pleased to have been able to play that role when looking back on it. And that's the end of our show. But there's much more from my conversation with Jeffrey Kessler. Just as our interview was wrapping up, I asked him if he had any negotiating advice for the rest of us. And he did. It's advice that I think applies as much to a multi-billion dollar merger as it could to getting your next raise. Hear the rest of what he had to say on Brazen Plus on Apple Podcasts. The Closer is a production of Project Brazen in partnership with PRX. Our show is produced by Isabel Kirby McGowan and Ben Walsh. Marianne Gonzalez is our project manager, Olivia Mead is our researcher, and Lucy Woods is head of research. Golda Arthur is our showrunner, and Bradley Hope and Tom Wright are executive producers. Megan Dean is programming manager, and Ryan Ho is design lead. Our marketing consultant is Maggie Taylor, and Noor Abdel Latif is our podcast strategist. I'm Amy Keene. Thanks for listening.